0: Welcome. You're on Deep Background, the Kansas City Star's newsroom broad podcast. We're not broadcasting. I'm Scott Cannon, a reporter, and with me today is Andy Marso. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Scott. Andy is our health reporter, and we're going to kick around some, some of the many, many things that are going on in the world of health care, health insurance, and such. And obviously, the, the big question is Obamacare, Trump care, and what all will become of it. Let's Maybe talk for a minute, Andy, about how Obamacare is playing out in Kansas and Missouri now. We we feel like we've still got enough insurers that are willing to play in the markets,
1: right? Yeah, but it's, it's tenuous at this point. There's not much room for error there. Um, so in Kansas, right now, we have uh, the state's largest insurer, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Kansas, is in for the Obamacare exchange next year, which is... Um, a pretty big deal because they cover 103 counties out of the 105. The only counties they don't cover is Wyandotte County and Johnson County. And so, they have been losing quite a bit of money on the exchange. So for them to stay in it is a major commitment for them, although uh, this year they're trying something new where they've moved to an HMO style plan. So they don't provide any coverage at all for out-of-network care, except, of course, in emergencies and such. So it could be that we, we haven't seen the numbers, obviously, yet from this year, the financials. It could be that that is uh, turning around their financial fortunes, and, and that makes them you know a little more you know interested in, in staying on the exchange. Uh, and then in Johnson and Wyandotte County... We're, well, let me back up. Okay, what, sure. What's the
0: incentive of Blue Cross to be in all these counties where they're losing money?
1: Um, well, I mean, they their argument is basically we've been here for like 100 years. We've been serving Kansans, and we kind of understand that if we're not here... Um, Possibly nobody will be. The only other insurer that's in those counties right now is Medica, which is based in Minnesota, and they've capped their ACA enrollment at 10,000 so far. And to give some perspective, there's about 100,000 people in Kansas as a whole that buy their insurance through the ACA, through healthcare.gov. So Medica is only, you know, they're kind of dipping their toe in at this point. They're taking maybe 10%. And so without Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Kansas, the people in the outstate, those 103 counties, they a lot of them might not have any choices. Right. And the farther
0: you go out there, the more difficult it is to provide that insurance. I don't doubt that Blue Cross has some uh, corporate goodwill towards Kansas, but it's also got to be a long play, right? They're not just – their shareholders certainly don't want them to – to be just good citizens.
1: Yeah, and they're they're figuring it out. They're figuring out how, where they need to set their premium rates, and they have improved their financial picture year over year. They haven't gotten to the point yet, at least as of uh, the end of 2016, where they were spending less on medical care than they were receiving in premiums. So, I mean, it's financially impossible to make money until you get to that point. You've got to get to the point where your, your medical loss ratio, as they, they say, is under 100%. And uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Kansas hasn't gotten there, and in fact, they've not gotten under 110% yet. So it'll be very interesting to see, though, if this new HMO-style plan gets them there. That should save them some money, um, because, like I said, they're not you know, providing even a lower level of reimbursement for the out-of-network care.
0: Right. And so I cut you off. You're talking about what's happening in Johnson and Wyandotte.
1: Right. So Johnson and Wyandotte County are covered by Blue Cross Blue Shield Kansas City. And their financial picture has been a little bit better, actually, than their sister company there in the outstate areas. They have gotten their medical loss ratio under 100 percent, but they still haven't committed to being on the exchange next year. Uh, they've apparently gotten some sort of Um, extension from the Kansas Insurance Department um, because plan designs were supposed to be filed by Monday Uh, and so they say they're gonna make that decision soon but so they've been very critical of how the exchange has gone for insurers and so far they haven't committed to being in next year which would mean uh, medicas in every county so that would mean that you know people in Johnson and Wyandotte County would have the choice of Medica, unless Medica decides to go with that hard cap again of 10000 And they, they have until July to make that decision. They told me they haven't decided yet. And how do
0: I get into Medica? Do I sign up earlier Is it first come, first serve?
1: <clears throat> yeah, I would guess so. <laughs> so yeah, it would be, if you were in Johnson and Wyandotte County and that was the situation, you would want to be on online right away, I think. So it's a tricky situation for the metro area if Blue Cross Blue Shield doesn't get in. Now, they still say that they haven't decided. They still say that you know they're looking at it. But right now, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty tenuous.
0: And Missouri, where's the situation there?
1: So Missouri, uh, so Blue Cross Blue Shield Kansas City covers about 30 counties in western Missouri. So they're very key to that side of the state line, too. If they don't get in over there, um, things could be bad uh, Cigna is the only other option right now that I'm aware of. Um, Humana has pulled out, they're done. Uh, Aetna pulled out of every exchange everywhere. So right now on the Missouri side, uh, and Cigna hasn't said yet, you have until July to file anything in Missouri. So the, the deadlines in Missouri are later. We won't know until July on the Missouri side, but as of this year, the only insurers that are still in the game are, uh, Blue Cross Blue Shield Kansas City, uh, Cigna, and Humana, and Humana has already said they're out for next year. So no word yet. It's a little bit easier
0: in Missouri simply because you've got population density. I mean, you do have rural stretches, but they're not as remote. And that doesn't that matter?
1: Yeah, it does. Um, And uh, Missouri is kind of split into kind of three. Geographic areas that the different insurers, you know, cover. So one is the, the Kansas City area, basically western Missouri. Then there's Central Missouri, which is this you know north south swath that includes Columbia down to Springfield. And then there's the St. Louis market. And so for our purposes in Kansas City, we need to be watching for Blue Cross Blue Shield KC. I mean, they're the big ones. Still.
0: Right. And all this is taking place, of course, in the context of. Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, under a severe attack in in Washington. You know, for something like seven years straight, ever since it was passed, the the Republicans in the House and Senate would vote to repeal it, knowing full well that they couldn't because Obama would veto anything. Now it's their baby. We've got something that passed the House that, uh, you know, even those who passed it aren't particularly pleased with. The idea is we'll, we'll fix it in the Senate. The Senate said we're not even really messing with that bill. We're starting all over. But it, it, it's, it's a really tricky fix, in part because you know the Democrats have won in sense of Obamacare because it, 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 at some level, the expectation of health insurance as an entitlement has become ingrained in, in
1: our politics, Right uh it's becoming ingrained there's no doubt i think there's still a segment of the population on the on the right that that thinks you know you got to be self sufficient you got to go out and get your own insurance figure out how to get it and the government shouldn't be involved but i think that portion of the population is getting smaller and i think donald trump has something to do with that i mean if you look at you know he won uh, on a healthcare platform of healthcare for all. <laughs> I mean, so it was a very different sort of feel for a Republican candidate, but he, he won uh, with that.
0: Yeah, it should be philosophy. said though he 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 didn't then and still hasn't laid out a plan about how sure. he would make that work. It was more of a hypothetical,
1: right? it was more of a hypothetical than any sort of you know nitty gritty policy plan, which is sort of his style. Uh, it was a lot of talk, but the talk resonated with a certain portion of the public that, you know, votes Republican, which I think has surprised some people. And I think that does give uh, even congressional Republicans pause when they look at rolling back some of what was done through Obamacare, because, you know, regardless, Obamacare did not lower costs, uh, but it did increase coverage. More people are covered now uh, than ever before. And so it's going to be tricky for Republicans to figure out how to Um, you know, kind of put their own stamp on health care and roll that back without having less people being insured, which I think most of America is starting to, you know, come to this uh, philosophy that, you know, more people being insured is better than less people being insured.
0: Right. And we, we have the phenomenon in both Kansas and Missouri. The key to the Obamacare plan was we will expand Medicaid dramatically, we'll give states We'll pay for, we the feds, meaning all taxpayers, will pay for most of it initially, and that will be ramped down, and the bill will gradually be passed on to the states. And both Kansas and Missouri, Republicans in the legislature said, no, we don't want to go there. And so you've got this giant donut hole between those who have a job and get some sort of private insurance and those who um, are poor enough to qualify for Medicaid under the old rules, and those in the middle that would have been covered, a large number of them covered by the expansion of Medicaid, but not so in Kansas and Missouri. I'm, that's a fair yeah. way to describe it, right? Yeah,
1: that's true. There, It's the, what they call the coverage gap. Yeah, in states that did not expand Medicaid, yeah, you've got people who are, a lot of them working, but they're maybe working hourly wage jobs, maybe a couple of part-time jobs, don't get insurance through their employer, um, but like you said, they, they make far too much money to qualify for Medicaid, because in both Kansas and Missouri, unless you're disabled or pregnant or under 18, you are under, I think, maybe 21, you really can't qualify for Medicaid if you make any income whatsoever. Um, so, and then you've got to make a certain level of income to qualify for the federal subsidies to buy health insurance on healthcare.gov. So these people in this gap, they kind of, you know, in a horrible irony, they don't make enough money <laughs> to right. qualify for federal assistance on the exchange, but meanwhile they make way too much money most of them even though they're not making very much <laughs> to qualify for Medicaid in in their states. So yeah, that's that has been a problem and Um, I'm not necessarily sure that anybody's figured out a way to address that without expanding Medicaid.
0: Right. And what's unclear, what's going to come out of Congress is whether we blow this system up entirely or we're simply fixing these various problems with Obamacare. And, of course, one of the biggest issues is what happens to the guy who's— who's had cancer or some other sort of pre-existing condition. And the, the plan coming out of the house is that these folks would be shifted into high-risk pools. And the big concern is that the premiums in those pools would be, make it essentially unaffordable to, to most people.
1: So <clears throat> we should note that the, the plan that came out of the house leaves that to the discretion of the states. States can either you know sort of stay in the system they have now, or <clears throat> With, in which everybody is able to purchase insurance at the same rate, regardless of pre-existing conditions. Or states can opt to create a high-risk pool and then allow insurers to, yes, charge people. The insurers would still have to legally offer coverage to people with pre-existing conditions, but they would be able to charge whatever they want. So as a practical matter, they could make it entirely unaffordable for somebody with cancer to buy a health insurance policy then, yes, the state would have to allow those folks the option of purchasing through a quote-unquote high-risk pool, which is essentially this big pool full of you know people who need a lot of medical care. And so, the premiums are sky-high unless they're subsidized by the government. And in the past, the, the, the high-risk pools that have existed, most of them anyway, the government has not kicked in enough money to really make those premiums affordable. Because if you think about that pool, you have to kick in a whole lot of money to make those premiums affordable at all, in any way. And most state governments just are not, have not been willing to do that historically. And so I think it a lot of so opponents- what's the incentive are, for a
0: state to go that route?
1: Well, you can bring more insurers in. You'll get more insurers that will want to, to come and sell plans in your state, because the insurers have more freedom to charge sick people more. And that obviously helps their business model. Um, because under uh, the ACA, Obamacare, they're very restricted in in who they can charge more. You can charge more based on age, uh, whether or not you smoke, and geographic location. That is it. Otherwise, you know... You know, you can have a 25-year-old hemophiliac with cancer, so this is a very expensive person to insure, but the insurer has to offer them the same premiums as a 25-year-old who's otherwise perfectly healthy. So those states would look very attractive to private health insurers, and you would get a lot, most likely, you would get a lot more businesses coming in and competing in that market, driving down prices for everybody else. So essentially... So you could see a state like Kansas, for
0: instance, look at those high-risk pools is one way to draw people in.
1: To yeah, to draw in an insurers, and that would be great for people who don't have to go to the high-risk pool. So essentially, what, what the states that uh, go that route would be rewarding people who are not sick, because those people would most likely see much lower premiums because of all the competition among new insurers and the fact that they're no longer subsidizing all the sick people who are now in the high-risk pool. So it would be good for people who aren't sick. It would if history is any indication it would not be good for people who are sick who do have pre-existing conditions they would end up paying a lot more that's free market health insurance essentially you know if you are talking about unleashing the power of the free market the free market when it comes to health insurance is really good for people who don't need a lot of health care and is not so good for people who do need a lot of health care right.
0: There's a lot of talk about the free market. And if you look beyond health insurance but the health care, there's also talk about imposing more market pressure on health care. And to me, that seemed to be a particularly difficult nut to crack. If I'm going to pick a doctor and I want to get the best buy, uh, someone who charges a fair price for good service— it's really hard for the layman to figure out who the best family physician to go to, who the best radiologist, where's the best buy in radiology or, or chemotherapy. I, I, You know, I, I don't have confidence that my family doctor can really tell me who the best orthopedist to go to is. He might have friends who are orthopedists, but... Um, Am I wrong? Is there some evidence to suggest that that the layman could figure out the market, because the market only works when people know the value of what they're buying?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, so healthcare, it's an interesting field in that uh, it's very hard to have, like you said, perfect information as you try and make these consumer decisions. And, and as you said, even physicians who are reading medical literature regularly, there's so much research that's done every year that it would be impossible even for individual physicians to keep up with it. Now, they belong usually to groups like you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics. And those groups have people reviewing literature and making recommendations. And the federal government has boards and expert panels that are reviewing research and making recommendations. And yet, because healthcare, you know, it's a science field and science is constantly changing shifting evolving and so you know a a, a physician if you need a knee replacement your physician may tell you, okay, you should go to this guy because he does this procedure and it's the best. And then, a physician down the street might say, no, you ought to go to this guy because he used to do that procedure, now he does this one, it's way better, you'll be up on your feet faster, it'll save money, et cetera, et cetera. So it's hard enough just to stay on top of everything that's changing. In the meantime, there's,
0: there'll be debate on, the, on a knee replacement or anything else, whether the, the surgery is is appropriate.
1: Sure. And then down the road, you might find that, you know, after 10,000 of those knee, replace, knee replacements have been done in the new style, you might find that, you know, they had much higher infection rates than the people who are getting them done in the old way. And so it, 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 the science will change yet again. And so it is very difficult to be a consumer in the healthcare realm. And there are some new tools available online to kind of especially through insurance companies who obviously have an interest in, in getting people to shop around for lower costs, there are tools online that can help you kind of price things out, but it's very, very difficult to price out quality and to, like, to, to judge quality or to...
0: Right. I've actually used one of those, and, and it, it, you're right. It was helpful in figuring out which was a little bit lower price, um, but you, you, you can't sort out quality and, and the sort of difficult decisions that are involved there let me let me hit on one other policy thing and then I want to switch to how tech might change things one thing that Trump did talk about was we'll let insurance companies sell across state lines and it strikes me as interesting we've not heard that in the discussion over uh, a, a new Trump care bill and there's also real complications to that I mean it, it if, if I'm Aetna or Blue Cross or somebody, if I'm going to sell insurance in Finney County, Kansas, under the same plan that I'm selling out of Riverside, California, it's really complex because I've got to set up providers in all these areas, right? There's a reason beyond the, the why states might want to regulate how insurance is sold within their right. borders, which we'll set aside for the moment, but it's just logistically hard to set those systems up.
1: Yeah. I mean, insurance, it's not like a, like an iPad or something. It's not, so you can't just like <laughs> out of the box, sell it <laughs> in a different geographic location. It, it sometimes takes years to build a provider network, like you said, because that, what that entails is, you know, literally going to these medical providers and negotiating rates for various procedures and, you know, that if you're not from that area especially, you're that's gonna you're gonna have to start from scratch. You're gonna have to get directories from, you know, various licensing boards and, you know, you're gonna have to figure out who you know, in terms of what dermatologists are in this area, what pediatricians are in this area, and then you're going to have to go and try and negotiate rates with them to see who's going to be in your network or not. It, it does, it's...
0: I mean, it's part of the reason, going back to earlier in a conversation, why Kansas might stick, or why Blue Cross might stick in Kansas when they're losing money at the time, because they've invested in that network and the contacts and the organization of it, and it may prove profitable one day, but if they walk away, then they'll come back having to start from scratch or let somebody else move in and still part of the market.
1: Right. It's more labor intensive on the front end. Right. So, yeah. And that's why, I mean, yeah, the allowing insurers to sell across state lines. Well, I mean, number one, they, they can sell across state lines right now. They just have to abide by the regulations of individual states' insurance departments because insurance is regulated at the state level.
0: Let's switch a little bit to the promise of technology. And I'm not talking about the latest MRI machine, but the way in which we manage things um, with technology. In Kansas City, we certainly know that uh, electronic medical records are a big business. Cerner is the biggest, fastest-growing private employer in the region um, because (laughs) they've, they've... tapped into this market, and it's a market that got a boost after the 2008 recession because part of the stimulus bill gave money to hospitals and doctors and such to change their paper records to digital records. But the promise, the big promise of electronic medical records is that all my information would follow me everywhere everywhere. And so that I wouldn't have to fill out those, it wouldn't be just that I don't have to fill out all those stupid forms at every doctor's office, but that the doctor would be better armed to identify what's been done to me, what might work for me in the future. And we haven't seen that promise come through in any real way. Am I right about that, or is that short-selling? I
1: mean, I think we've seen it to some extent, because we have gotten a lot better at sharing uh, records within the same health system. But again, we're, we're like having an economics discussion as much as anything here because a lot of the promise of electronic me- medical records depends on how much the government is willing to step in and mandate things within this market of healthcare. And so in countries like Great Britain... It's a much easier lift because you've got one giant national health system that's na- you know it's, it's government run, and so if they say okay we're all going to use this software, and that software you know because it's the same it speaks to each interoperability. Speaks to, right yeah interoperability it's you know it speaks to other computers within that network, so you can connect the entire national health system fairly easily. So in the United States, you've got tens of thousands, maybe, well, certainly hundreds of thousands, if you count all of the you know individual doctors, but even just hospitals, you got tens of thousands of hospitals, and uh, you know that they are consolidating slowly, but it's still you know a bunch of different companies that are running a bunch of different software, and you know the government in the United States has not been willing to even. Um, you know, intrude into the electronic medical records industry because, yes, Cerner is very big, but it does have competitors like Epic, which is also very big, and a few others, which are smaller, but still major players. And so you've got multiple companies making multiple types of so- software for multiple hospital systems. And so it doesn't all talk to but they, each other.
0: they already are under some mandates to make these Interchangeable, or at least some
1: data on there. Am I right? Uh, somewhat, but it's just it's not stringent enough regulation to really, you know, require um, total free movement of this information. And you know, there's all sorts of you know proprietary, you know. Concerns there for the companies. There's also privacy concerns. So it is complicated, especially in a system that's as fragmented as ours, to get to the point where your medical re- record literally can follow you anywhere. And the model for this is in the United States is the VA. If there's one thing that the VA does well, it's that you can go to any VA provider in the country. And access your medical records if you're. A it's VA also a way
0: we get interesting medical research out of the VA because you've got big data, lots of numbers about lots of people over time, mm-hmm. and, and and it's apples to apples in comparison.
1: Right, and but again, that's government-run healthcare, so it's you know it's a single contractor and it's contracting with a single company, and so that's it's a totally different animal than private sector healthcare.
0: Yeah, the other thing that uh, I'm coming to realize in the last year or so is how much doctors loathe these medical records. They, they, they yeah. a, a doctor uh, working the same hours, number of hours in a day today versus somebody five or ten years ago has less time to see patients because he's he or she is clicking on the boxes and in a medical record, is that fair?
1: Yeah, I mean, unless they're willing to stay hours and hours after, you know, all their appointments to, you know, com- finish completing all of those medical. It's so records. counterintuitive, right? Yeah. So, and oddly enough, this has created this phenomenon has created an entirely new job within our healthcare realm, which is medical scribes, which are essentially people who just sit there with the doctor and you know check off everything for the, the EMR, the electronic medical record, as the doctor does the appointment. And so those are jobs that pay 30 to 40 grand a year, and you can get them pretty much with a high school diploma. It's often kids who are you know in college and they're pre-med, and so they're trying to get uh, kind of a foot into the industry. Um, but You can see
0: that it would be a good learning experience at an early age, too. Yeah,
1: definitely. And, uh, but, yeah, that's the I think that's fascinating to me, the idea that you know, by mandating these EMRs, we've actually ended up creating this entirely new cost structure within the medical system, which is you know, a new position for a new full-time position for somebody to just fill out the EMRs.
0: Right. You also wrote a, a piece not too long ago. I think it's at Children's Mercy where they're using an app. So, uh, if I rec- well, why don't you walk me through? But it, basically, it's a way to to have a, a brain trust in your pocket as you as a physician or a clinician goes through diagnostics. Yeah, right? and,
1: and this sort of thing is it's kind of blowing up within the medical industry. So. Um, Checklists have become big in medicine, just like, you know, a pilot has a checklist. If you're in the ER for certain conditions, you're you're gonna have a checklist to make sure you don't miss something. And so, locally, this team of people from Children's Mercy teamed up with a local tech company that's Engage Mobile, based out of the River Market area, with some local grant funding. And they put together an app that is kinda like a GPS, It's kinda like turn-by-turn directions, When a child presents with a fever. Because a fever, you know, it can mean all sorts of things from totally benign to, you know, serious to the point of being life threatening. And so, this this uh, app, when you pull it up on your phone, it gives you kind of the step-by-step, like, okay, check this, check this part of the child's medical history, what age is the child, and you enter in all of that data, and then it tells you what lab tests you should run, and then you enter in the lab results. And you can see how computer
0: coding would come in real handy, if this, then that, right? That's right. the whole yep.
1: logic. Yep, and there's a similar app for adults that was that has also been being developed and has been developed locally uh, called Redivis, uh, which is for um, uh, cardiac arrest and also for sepsis. And, and And the guy who developed that app, Jeff Dunn, he's a, a physician, uh, he told me that they are working on getting it fully integrated with uh, EMR systems. So, yeah, the app, as you put in the data, would then you know, shift it into the EMR, which would obviously help. But uh, so far, you know, that's, that's something they're still working on because, again, there's so many different EMRs, <laughs> right. it's hard. But you could
0: see this sort of technology uh, also working in cost-benefit analysis, and, and particularly on a large aggregate scale, you know, what, how, how we're going to use – it seems to me that the U.S. medical system doesn't lack for um, scientific genius, but it does lack for – prudence and and just sort of uh, the management of our resources. Is it am I right that this would hold that possibility ultimately?
1: Yeah, I mean I think I think you're talking about population health essentially and how to get the most bang for our buck in terms of uh, you know the interventions we do which up to this point we haven't necessarily spent a whole lot of time studying it's just kind of because we've been in a fee for service model of uh, of healthcare where the more services you provide the more money you make the incentive is just to keep providing services well I think we're we're kind of figuring out more and more that um, there's limits to that because we just don't have enough providers to provide all the services, especially as people age. And so now we're trying to think more about, like, okay, what interventions give us the most bang for our buck on a population level? And, and yeah, so in that sort of philosophy, any amount of data that you can build uh, is very helpful. And so Cerner has been, you know, Kind of really starting to focus on this because they have so much data because of their EMRs. Um, but yeah, apps like this that create more data points that kind of show, like, okay, you know, intervening this way at this point helps uh, you know prevent uh, a infection that leads to sepsis, which is a very expensive condition to treat. Then you know, not only are you saving people time in the hospital, you're also saving the hospital system. Well, you're saving a lot of money. Um, you're not necessarily saving the hospital system money because they still make money based on the fee for service. This is something that I talked to uh, Charlie Shields, the the head of Truman Medical Center, about this population health idea, and you know he he's on board with it. But he also said to me like Yeah, we still haven't figured out really how hospitals are going to to make their money on this model because. The population health model it, re, it it's intended to reward you for preventing hospitalizations, and so then if you prevent a hospitalization, then how does the hospital benefit from that? Right, well, right now in our current model, it doesn't. So we we kind of need to figure that out too as we go along. But that's something for down the road. Right now, uh, you know, locally anyway, the hospitals have plenty of people in the beds.
0: Right, and the, the fee for service model is. Is what drives the system, but it's also problematic. And sure, it's got the, perverse know, the use incentives. Of these these yeah. sort of apps or that that sort of checklist is using data, and also in the process acquires more data, and should build almost exponentially over time. Right. Well, listen. Thank you for sharing your big brain with us today. We've got more <laughs> topics of uh, around healthcare that will will come at you in the future. But um, this has been another commercial free episode of Deep Background. We hope you'll. Uh, Rate us, uh, subscribe to Deep Background, and maybe share it with your friends. You've been on Deep Background.